add my welcome to you all. My name is Greg Durenberger. I'm the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church, and it is an honor and a pleasure for us to worship together with you today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or electronic devices to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be giving attention to Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. It never gets old. It's one of those expressions that we use when we're referring to things that affect us at the emotional level over and over again and again. It never gets old. It never gets old when my wife takes my face in her hands and kisses me. It never gets old to hug my grandchildren. It never gets old to especially when the oldest granddaughter, the one who's able to use words, gives me a hug and says, I love you, Grandpa. It never gets old to worship with you, the people of Emmaus Road Church, as you pour out your hearts in full-throated, full-bodied expressions of praise to God. These These are just a few of the many things that, to me, never get old. But... There is the potential that some things of profound importance, things that we've seen, done, experienced again and again, can get old. That is, we can become so accustomed to them that they they no longer affect us as they once did. And such is the potentiality of Easter. Commemorating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is either an expression of living faith that for you never gets old, or it is little more than a meaningless expression of a dry or perhaps faltering faith. Which is it for you? It's my prayer that as we bring to the forefront of our attention today the old, old story of Christ crucified, Christ risen, and Christ appearing again, that the Spirit of the living God would bring such fresh illumination to these epic realities. So I want to invite you to follow along. I'm going to read the account of Jesus' resurrection recorded by Matthew. If you are able, would you please stand in honor and regard for the Word of God. Now, after the Sabbath... And toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come. See the place where he lay. 
And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Friends, this is the event by which God Almighty has transformed lives and changed the world. Let's pray. It's not just a text. Though the text of Scripture, your holy and authoritative word, is powerful. Powerful to bring illumination. Powerful to disclose the truths by which we are saved. But beyond this text is the event that has changed all history. It is the word of Christ crucified, risen, and appearing again. And Lord, we pray that you would magnify this word for the power that it is to beget faith, to edify the saints, to encourage, to build up the church, and to save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a helpful reminder, I think, at times to recognize that when reading narrative portions of the Bible, like this one, it's worth noting the specificity of of details such as Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Matthew draws attention to specifics so that we understand this actually happened. Matthew means for the readers of this text to know what happened on that day at the hour. That hour is a historical fact. And that's important because the foundation on which the Christian faith is established is not merely a philosophical framework nor is it a mystical vibe, nor is it a cultural construct. The foundation of the Christian faith is based on actual events that happened at specific times, on specific days, in specific places. And the confidence that that historicity engenders is another one of those things that never gets old. This happened. It happened. And further, Matthew recounts these events with particular vocabulary and emphasis intended to focus our attention on the specific things for a specific purpose in order to communicate 
a specific meaning. So notice the word behold, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Verse 7, behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, that's actually the word behold, behold, I have told you. And then in verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, verse 10, tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Clearly, Matthew means for us to do something more than just simply listen. We're supposed to look at something. We're supposed to see something. He means for us to share in the excitement and wonder and joy of what has happened. We get this, right? There are times when we want to convey more than information. The other night I was, I was watching the Minnesota Wild hockey game and it ended in a tie. And Barely a minute into overtime, the Wild goaltender, he makes a great save, fires a stretch pass to this wing gets behind the defense, makes a great deke, an amazing room uh, move against the other team's best player, and rifles in the winning goal. And not 30 seconds after that, I get a text from my hockey fan, son, what a goal! That's different than saying, the Wild won. It's saying, what a goal! <laughs> it's saying, behold! That's putting words on paper and writing, if you didn't see it, you have to see this. And that leads to the other thing that Matthew does in this text. Matthew aims to make sure that we understand that what is beheld in these events rocks the world. Rocks the world at the heart level. That is, Matthew means for us to, to feel it. So, keep in mind that the first two characters on the scene are women who were still in shock over what they had already beheld. To watch a crucifixion is not something you would ever forget. The blood so much blood. The inconceivable torture, the brutality, the suffering, the sights, the sounds of moaning and crying and screaming and pleading and gagging and gasping of excruciating pain. The intensity of these watchers, their rage and their remorseless mockery, all directed at the person you trusted, the person that you loved and served and cared for, and followed. To behold this was to etch something in your mind, in your spirit, that would haunt you and stay with you forever. Matthew 27, 55, and 56. There were also many women there at the cross looking on. who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And then when the disciple named Joseph, Joseph from Arimathea, took Jesus' mutilated corpse and wrapped it and laid it in his own tomb, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. sitting opposite the tomb. So Matthew means for us to know that these two Marys beheld it all. They felt it all. And Matthew means for us to behold it and feel it too. Why? Why such emotionally charged language? Loved ones, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the singular, most profound, most pivotal, most extraordinary, most significant moment in the history of the world. And the world is greatly tempted to make it mainly about eggs and candy. Matthew 28, verse 2, Matthew says there was an earthquake. That's not right. (laughs) There was a great earthquake. And the cause of this great earthquake was not on account of shifting subterranean tectonic plates. According to verse 2, And behold, look, see this, feel this, there was a great earthquake for, that is, because or on account of the fact that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So what those men beheld so shocking, so terrifying, I guess we could fairly assume that becoming like dead men means they must have fainted. They thought they were going to die. What's remarkable here, what I I believe we're supposed to behold, is that in this moment, while the, the, the tomb protectors fainted, the angel caused who caused the earthquake, addresses the women in verse 5. Do not be afraid. While others are fainting, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And the stage is now set for the words that would forever change the world. He is not here, for he has risen. And and under the circumstances, namely some 
you know, somewhat dramatic appearance of an angel descending from the sky, causing fissures in the earth. Just saying it once was not enough. In order for the words to register in the intensity of this moment, the angel says it again in verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, behold, I've told you. So surely the events Matthew has described are earth-shaking, not just in a physical sense, not only in a history-making sense, but also and ultimately in a spiritual sense that affects all of eternity. The, The genius of Matthew's literary accomplishment lies in the fact that he writes not not merely to inform us, but to send a you gotta see this kind of shockwave through his readers. And further, as if there could be more, he writes not merely to describe the world's most monumental moment, but to summarize in three simple phrases its monumental meaning. Christ was crucified, Christ has risen, and you will see him again. For disciples of Jesus, these these three things are intended. They're intended to have the same enduring impact as watching an execution, as experiencing an earthquake, as Seeing an angel descending like lightning. They change everything. They change you forever. They never get old. And so, behold. Behold first, Christ was crucified. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary had to have been, they had, you know, these had to have been formidable women. <laughs> Don't you think? Uh, Following Jesus, they'd seen some things, miracles, healings. According to Mark's gospel, Mary Magdalene herself had experienced Jesus' power and authority in delivering her from seven demons. At the cross and at the tomb, these two Marys were eyewitnesses to You know, the kind of visceral gore, shredded flesh down to the bone that only only nurses in trauma centers or battlefield mash units see. And here they were, apparently hoping to enter the tomb and unwrap Jesus' mangled remains and apply some odor-retarding spices. And right there, right right there is part one of this crucial message. Verse 5, the angel says, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Loved ones, listen. 
There is no Easter without a crucified Christ. What happened because Jesus died? Because Christ was crucified, God's wrath for sin was assuaged. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25 says, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, by His death, by His crucifixion. Because Jesus' blood flowed, because Jesus was crucified, God's wrath is propitiated. God is satisfied. Justice has been done. We can be forgiven. Because Christ was crucified, we may be accepted by God, reckoned as though we had never sinned, reckoned as though we'd always obeyed. Romans 5.9 says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death, of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So by, by Jesus' death, we can be justified. Because Christ was crucified, we can be reconciled to God. Because Christ was crucified, we can experience true, moral, spiritual freedom. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, through his death, through his crucifixion, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means to buy back. So like slaves purchased at an auction, we as spiritual slaves to sin and disobedience have been bought with a price, the price of Christ's own blood, and having paid the price for our freedom with his blood in Christ we are free from enslavement to sin. Because Christ was crucified, we may have restored fellowship with God. Ephesians 2.13 says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood, the death, the crucifixion of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He's our peace. Because Christ was crucified, we may have peace. Colossians 1.19 and 20. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. By the death he died on the cross. Loved ones, without a crucified Christ, there is no propitiation. Without the cross, there is no justification. Without the cross, there is no redemption. Without the cross, there is no reconciliation. Without the cross, there is no peace. And it should be obvious that without a crucified Christ, a dead Christ, there can be no resurrected Christ. For that from which Christ rose is death. The, the stunning history-altering words repeated twice for emphasis in good measure according to Matthew 
28, 6, and 7 are, he is not here, for he has risen. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Loved ones, what makes Christ's resurrection so remarkable is is not simply the fact that Jesus was once dead, laid in a tomb. What makes Christ's resurrection something truly to truly behold is its significance, its meaning. For you see the cross, the cross has no meaning without the resurrection. The cross has no merit without the resurrection. What Jesus claimed to be is not true without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the cross is only an execution. A man punished for sins dies. Now, if the sin a person was penalized for, punished for, was let's say, robbery. He stole somebody's vehicle. The appropriate penalty might include some steep fines, maybe some prison time. If he killed somebody, was convicted of murder in the first degree, some states, like the state of South Dakota, he might pay the penalty of death by lethal injection. What then is the just penalty for all the sins of all the people who have ever lived? What is a commensurate price to pay for all the sins of all the people who are still living and sinning and all the sins of the people yet to live? It's a lot of sins, a lot of sins. And they are not merely crimes committed by humans against other humans. These are crimes committed against a holy and infinite and eternal God. So how then is it possible for one man, one human being, to pay a penalty commensurate for all the sins of all the people who have ever lived, are living, and will ever live against a holy, infinite, and eternal God. That that man, that one man must be more than merely a man. He must be an infinite man in order to pay an infinite penalty. He must be a God-man. That's the only way the life of one man, the death of one man, would have infinite value so that his dying might fully pay the infinite price for those countless sins those countless people have committed. And then, how could we know that this God-man's death is actually effective. It's it's actually a just penalty to pay for all the sins of all the people. How can we know that God accepts this man's death as sufficient atonement for all the sins of all the people? How can we know Christ's death was 
the crucifixion of the God-man and not just a man whose sacrifice God actually accepts. How do we know? The Apostle Paul writes that he descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Here's how. By his resurrection from the dead. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus' death was a sufficient sacrifice to atone for all the sins of all people for all time. Sufficient. Adequate. It was sufficient because Jesus is the Son of God. And we know Jesus is the Son of God whose death was a penalty sufficient to pay for all the sins of all the people for all time because... God raised him from the dead. That is, God accepted his death as sufficient atonement. Without the resurrection of Christ, the cross is meaningless. Without the resurrection of Christ, the cross would have been shown to have accomplished nothing except the punishment of one guy. But because Christ has risen, God has shown that the penalty paid in the death of this one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid it all. Jesus remaining in the grave is no longer necessary. His brutal death on the cross and three days in the grave is enough. The sacrifice of his body crucified is accepted. Justice is done. God's holiness is is vindicated, and now all who entrust themselves to Christ and his sacrifice are instantly and granted an unspeakably great salvation. Listen to Acts 13.30. But God raised him from the dead. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Loved ones, there is no Easter without a crucified Christ. And there is no salvation without a resurrected Christ. And the third incredible truth to behold is that we will see this Christ again. To the two indomitable Marys, the angel said in verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. You know, it's no longer, look, you got to see this. You got to see this. Now it's go quickly. You will see this. And according to verse 8, it is by faith in that promise that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. That's the way faith is, isn't it? Some mingling of fear and joy and anticipation and expectation. 
and they ran to tell his disciples. And before they could even get out of town, verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Seems a little understated to me, but greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Christ was crucified. Christ is risen. And for those who trust his promises, they will see him. And when they did see him, they worshipped him. And many of you have seen him. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus you look, you look at this Jesus on the pages of God's holy word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you behold him. He is real to you. And if you have not yet seen him, may the same Easter miracle happen for you today. And loved ones, we all have this to look forward to, the fulfillment of the promise that one day yet to come, we will see him face to face. And when we see him, we will be like him. Let's pray. As I was praying for you all this morning, I, I could not get out of my mind the image of those who had been employed to guard Jesus' tomb. And with that image in my mind's eye uh, was an urgency to pray for you. The impression was this, that, that, that the energy that... that those men spent hiding what had happened. Hiding what had happened just days before. Hiding what had happened in the past. Was keeping it from the miracle that was right around the corner. I felt this burden to pray for people who are here today who might be doing the very same thing. Is that what you do? Are, are you guarding a tomb? Are you asserting yourself to make sure that things in your past remain there? Shameful things, hurtful things, unjust things tragic things, wrongs that you've done, wrongs that have been done to you. And you, you've guarded those things. You stood guard there and kept them from the future that's right around the corner, from the transforming, life-giving, sin-atoning, resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if there are tomb protectors in this room. Paralyzed with guilt and shame 
fearful of wrath, fearful of judgment, fearful of rejection, hopelessly stuck. But that tomb that you are guarding is actually empty. None of us are whole. None of us are able to make ourselves right with God. But the good news is, is that Jesus is worthy. Jesus was crucified. Jesus has risen. And the fears you feel can be mingled with great joy. The great joy of hearing him say to you, do not be afraid. Trust me. Bend your knee to my will. Take hold of me. Worship me. Friends, that joy is only steps away. Let's stand together and sing.